Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're going to be talking about building the vineyard of the future and leveraging new technology with Kia Benia, the co-founder of Neotempo Wines. And we have a disclaimer that Neotempo Wines is a client of Peter's. We just want to make sure that that's fully disclosed for everybody listening. Kia, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Can you please give me and Peter a brief overview of your background prior to wine, but also how you fell in love with wine? Like many wine lovers, I fell in love with wine in the 90s and I went to UC Davis, but unfortunately didn't study enology or viticulture. I took a course and dropped it promptly after the midterm tastings where I realized I have to actually say what we're drinking as opposed to just drinking it. But I studied computer science and probably was a good bet at the time, very unsexy in the early 90s to be pulled away in the basement working on slow computers, but it turned out all right. So fell in love with wine there as well, was exposed to some great Merlot that they would serve at $1.50, $2 a glass. And then obviously love visiting Napa Valley in the days that there were no tasting fees. And if you showed a little bit of interest, somebody might pop a nice bottle that's not available from the back room. So grew up in the Bay Area, after school, went into tech and really was part of the starting point of the internet. Worked at several high-tech companies and senior executive roles, product roles. I was the chief technology officer for Marimba, which was a company founded by the team that founded the Java's at some microsystems. And then went on to BMC Software to be the CTO of BMC Software. We helped take that company from kind of a few hundred million to over a billion dollars in revenue. And then most recently, I was at Splunk which is another data platform that really helps operationalize and help enforce digital transformation from organizations across different industries. So I had a lot of tech experience. Always my heart was in the wine country and with wine. And now I get to live our dreams, which is to have a second chapter that's entirely focused on not just making wine, but hopefully helping the industry move forward and innovate. And so you ended up buying a vineyard on Silverado Trail in Napa that you call Kiatra after you and your wife, Tracy. When did you do that and why did you do that? So I did that in 2011. And honestly, this unique property was in my sights before. I actually had gotten a flat tire while biking back in the day when I would actually bike to taste wine. I used to park my car down by Trancas, bike up the valley. I got a flat tire, looked up, saw this gorgeous knoll with oaks and a very small cottage that was just very idyllic that many people know that site because that's kind of the start of wineries back in the day now there are more wineries south of us but that was kind of like almost a bookmark right next to Dariush. so in 2011 the property came on the market my wife and friends knew that that was a property that i'd like they pointed it out to me we came up took a look and did the kind of crazy thing of saying, hey, let's jump in and buy a vineyard. It was probably a few years too early at that time, I thought. But now looking back, one of the best decisions that I ever made, it helped me come in to the community and really start this adventure the right way. And after owning a vineyard for a few years, you recently decided to start your own wine brand, Neo Tempo. What drove that creation of Neo Tempo and how is it different from the actual vineyard? Yeah, I think it's a great point. 
I must say that the reason we could afford the property was that the vineyard was not well cared for, the vineyard that was there. Honestly, it had been planted to the wrong rootstock and it suffered. They had planted Chardonnay and Merlot. So the site had a lot of promise because I could see and I tasted wine directly adjacent at Darius 2, you know, the Apadana block is a stone's throw away. We wanted a clean slate. And in wine, as we all know, that's a very difficult, time-consuming journey to start from scratch and kind of build that. So when we bought the property, the first order of business was actually pull everything out, do the infrastructure investments to kind of make the soil rest, do the proper water retainment kind of improvements around the infrastructure. And then at that point, we knew kind of that we were in it for the long game. And we sat down and our vision was first to focus on the fruit that comes off the vineyard. Once that fruit is at a point that it goes into great wine, and in the beginning, it had to be other people's wines, then we would take the next step and start our own brand. So we always had a, I would say, a vision around one day potentially doing what we're doing now. But we also were very sober that this is a very long journey to have multiple milestones that we hit. The project took off. I think one of the most critical milestones was when Elias from Schaefer showed up to buy our fruit. And I'm a huge fan of Schaefer and have been for many years. And at that point, I knew that our quality was getting to a point that you start getting looks from real great legendary winemakers and wanting the fruit. And then we began also a relation with our neighbor, Daryush. It's a lifelong kind of dream for me to be able to have our grapes be part of a brand and a product that we really enjoyed and loved. And it also allowed us to see how the food would work with different winemakers so that as and different winemaking styles and in some ways do a beta run of kind of what would a brand be. And then 18 months ago, we decided very intentionally to start this project. I must say, I'm sure all your listeners are aware and probably many of them were impacted like we were around the 2017 fires. And that was absolutely one of the critical milestones where we thought we lost the entire property. In fact, we had people who saw that my wife was evacuated in the middle of the night. I was driving back from the Bay Area in Russia. I met her outside the property and we thought after putting everything we had in our life savings into this project, that the project was gone, that we we're going to have to start over. As it turned out, our vineyard actually acted as the firebreak and saved the property. So when we went back to the original master plan, we revised it. And we said, look, if we're going to do this project and we're going to make our own wine, we have to take that event and use it as a force for change and try to really help push whatever we can do to help the environment and the climate pieces. So it runs very deep. It's very personal to this day, the fire and how the community came together and how proud we were to be in Napa. And then also the reality that these events are gonna happen more and more as the climate becomes uncertain. And we believe technology and innovation are part of the solution. And we wanna apply that to not just our project, but other projects within the industry. Okay, and so that's one of the reasons why Neotempo wines and the Chiatra Vineyard are decoupled. Exactly. And Neotempo, the name, is actually a symbolism for new times. Where Chiatra was going to be the story that all of us want one day to dream about owning a vineyard, you know, husband and wife, and make the best fruit. Neotempo had a second mission, which was to basically create a wine brand for the modern times. 
and apply all the capabilities that we have, all these magical kind of tech that's available now that wasn't available even five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, with also aesthetics and values that today's society calls for, which is to be responsible, to be sustainable, to be diverse, to bring great wine to market, but do it in a new way. When is Neo Temple launching and what kind of wines or maybe grape varieties are you producing and at what price points? I think the first thing is that the first and second vintages are in barrel already. We'll bring those to market in the fall. And between now and the fall, we're building our online presence. This is a quality over quantity brand. So we're very much focused on making sure that we have the highest quality available so it's 100% estate grown. Everything we're marketing in this first wave are from the vines that I mentioned that we planted. Three different clones of Cabernet, 338, 412, and 685. Not the most common clones. That was very intentional because we wanted to build a complex wine that was complex through clonal distinction and kind of having terroir familiarity between the different blocks and different clones, but be able to kind of paint that complexity over. To me, it's one of the most purest expressions of the land, and that's what Chiatra, Chiatra will be the first wine from Neo Tempo, which we will always make that wine from our estate, and it will be a part of that. We do have other wines in our roadmap, but for this year, our focus is really on Chiatra. And what's the price point? Peter and I recently did a rendition of what pricing says about your brand. So I'm curious on what's the price point that you're looking at for those. And I think this is an interesting one. Honestly, this has been one of topics of discussion because with the cost changes that are happening in wine, one has to look to the future, not just backwards around pricing. But we want our wines to be accessible in the quality that they're basically providing. So Chiatra being 100% estate grown and honestly limited in supply probably will be below $250 a bottle. But our goal is to continue to introduce wines that have different price points. It's very important for me on this brand that we encourage lots of people to try it and bring it in. I wish I had a specific answer on that, but we're trying to finalize it. And that's the range that probably will be below. So you mentioned as more of a tech guy that you wanted to use more tech in the vineyard, leveraging technology to improve quality and become more sustainable. That seems like a no brainer. Why hasn't this been done before? And why isn't this like what everybody does now? So I think, Peter, one of the things that, again, I've seen throughout my career, 28 years, like I remember being in the first meeting with General Motors talking about their public facing website. Literally, there were executives at the time that said, why am I in this meeting? Website is just marketing to put a brochure out around the specs of the car. So technology, when it's new, has a challenge, which is the incumbent ways, culture, process, people tend to resist it. And there are people, by the way, that are on the opposite end. So I always say when a new technology comes out, there's people who think it will cure cancer and solve every problem that they've ever had and kind of really overshoot the possibilities. And then there are the deniers that like believe none of this stuff works and it's snake oil and we've done this before. And they'll list all the 15 companies that are out of business. They tried this. And the pragmatists are the ones that always win. And the pragmatists are the ones that look at what level of maturity is the product at? What level of maturity is my organization or my team at? If I'm at a pro level 
maturity, I can take on a lot of technology and not be afraid of it and put it to good use. But if I'm not at that higher level maturity from the people process standpoint, the best technology is like giving me a jet. I can't fly it. It's much better than my drone that I can fly. So I think we're at that stage right now that really we have no choice. The cost of labor and the climate change have brought an end to an era that we can do business as usual and expect to be okay. When I talk about labor, I'm not just talking about cost. I'm talking about in five years, 10 years, do you think people will come into farming to do basic, highly repetitive tasks like weed whacking? Is that a career? Look at their options that they have now. And so if we don't get in front of how does technology help us remove the wasted work, not great, the best farming or the best components, but highly repetitive work and get comfortable with that, we might be in a situation where we don't have enough humans to actually farm all the great vineyards that we have or make all the great wine or what have you. Or we just have to pay them so much that it draws people in from other places and makes the end product even more expensive. So I've heard you use the term smart farming to describe the ag tech solutions you're using. Can you describe what you mean by that? Yeah, so a smart farm provides a framework so that we can categorize the different type of technologies that are used and the purpose behind them. So SMART is an acronym. It stands for Sustainable, Monitored, Automated, Resilient, and Technology-Enabled. Obviously, a lot of what we're talking about does not replace intuition, farming intuition or experience that that many of the great farmers have. But we felt, particularly around sustainability, that technology is a huge element of helping farms become more sustainable by using emission-free tractors or being more sensitive at resource usage, such as water. Monitoring is something that we understand, and that could really kind of help organizations drive better quality out of the end product. Automation, again, is more around automating highly repetitive tasks or complex tasks. Resiliency is having scenarios and playbooks that we can utilize at wartime. If we know we're going to have hail or if we know the temperature is going to go up, what's the playbook that allows us to protect against that? So foggers, misters, those type of things come into that resiliency track. And on the technology, it's not just about sensors and hardware and tractors. It's also around data and being more data-driven in different aspects. So big part of what we do is look at data. What type of data do we need to make decisions? How do we use data to move from reactive to proactive to predictive? And uh, a lot of these tools are great. They provide data, but the data is often in the silo. And uh, we pull it together and put analytics on top of it. What what are some of the use cases that you see for smart farming? So I think there's a group of them we can go into detail if you like, but I look at weather and uh, irrigation monitoring as being very data rich and really useful so that you can really coordinate and plan correctly. Second one's around asset management and being able to kind of know what the age of the vines are, how do I kind of rotate or what's my block replanting strategy based on that. And then crop and plant evaluation. This is a very interesting area going beyond NVDI and kind of using computer vision to monitor the growth of different plants. So what do you think are those key areas in viticulture that technology can really help with and revolutionize? 
So I think one of the areas, and this is, again, has a personal connection. I look at organic farming, and I don't think anybody would argue that rather than putting herbicides and pesticides in, we would all rather have organic farms. The problem with that is quality and labor, like literally those two things that we just mentioned. And I think that's a huge opportunity for precision farming to attack big line items associated with organic farming, like weeding under the vines or mildew detection and kind of protection and areas that you can kind of apply sensors and automation to reduce the need for conventional kind of tactics or minimize it, make it a last resort. Irrigation is a massive opportunity. And I know we're getting all the rains now, and this year hopefully will turn out to be a year that we're not talking about drought, but we all know that it's a gamble, right, from year to year. Irrigation has a massive opportunity for us, particularly as the climate continues to become less predictable and more erratic, because you can use it to potentially give you relief from kind of the high heats that you have, particularly if you're using misters and you're smart about when you irrigate and how much you irrigate, et cetera. Another thing I want to talk about is obviously around autonomy and robots in the vineyards and the role that automation can play. I'm a huge fan of Monarch and kind of what they've been able to do because they've introduced a tractor that is driver optional. So it follows kind of the mold that I like, which is you can use it in an analog conventional way as just a tractor. Or you can actually say, you know what, if I'm spraying something that's not good, I want those drivers to be outside the tractor and be able to drive it with iPad. Or if I'm doing some basic data gathering, maybe I'll put it on autopilot and have the tractor on its own, be able to kind of self-drive and do functions like that. We're going to need solutions that are multimodal, as we call it in tech, where they can coexist in the conventional way that people use it. They can provide operator assistance in ways that perhaps we've never been able to do. And then they can also be autonomic where they can actually take actions and take entire workloads off of us. We need all three modes. So there's a lot of areas where we could be investing. I'm curious on what technology have you actually already deployed in your vineyard and seen success with? The approach I took, and again, it's interesting because it's with collaboration with our vineyard management team. And I have a ton of respect for a number, not just the ones that I've worked with, but people I've talked to around the valley who do vineyard management as a job, as a profession, because these are the real pros day in, day out. And one of the things that I was interested in was the use of data, particularly with my experience with Splunk. We literally went through industry after industry, work with the leaders in those industries to make them much more data-driven in every aspect of their business, especially their operations business. So we all know Amazon and retail and how data basically is their competitive advantage over all the other retailers. That's true of almost every leader in these specs. And when it came to data, I was quite frankly shocked at how much data is available, but not integrated. And then I was also a little bit surprised at how data-driven culture has not made it into viticulture and farming. So the first thing that we did was we brought in WineView one of the great products, there's multiples of them, to just do a what I would call a low-calorie, high-value scan of the vineyard at strategic times so that I can monitor the vigor of the vineyard. It shows me problem areas. It doesn't tell me what the problem is, but it at least starts isolating and quantifying some data. 
And I had historical data. One of the things I liked about this solution, it's a very easy SaaS-based solution. You can buy subscriptions and you can go backwards even on flights that may have happened in the past. So it immediately gave me value because I could go back and start comparing vintages and look at different blocks and different performance. I also brought in an Israeli company called Fitech to help me monitor irrigation and soil temperatures Throughout my vineyard, I have over 30 sensors installed. Phytech gave me visibility into how much water are the vines receiving through the ground, through the air, and through the drip system. 30 sensors across how many acres? So I have four. It's a small but very densely farmed vineyard. So we're four by six planting. So we have about 4,000 vines. But what it provided me was the ability to monitor and quite frankly, measure the stress level of the vines at different stages and water to the stress level, as opposed to the traditional model of having a regular schedule that you water for X number of hours and basically do that. I come from a philosophy of you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And on all of these areas like irrigation, which is, you can argue, as one of the most important kind of and controlled ways that you can kind of impact the vintage, I wasn't happy with the fact that we couldn't measure how much actually water was needed and we were watering all the blocks the same. Well, the minute we changed that, turns out the results were amazing because we could now dial in exactly how much water is needed in each of the different blocks and then be able to measure it. We measured the soil temperature. So during the heat wave of last year, which was three heat events that happened in Napa, we were able to pre-water, pre-irrigate make sure that the temperature of the rootstocks were at a healthy level and then basically be able to reduce the damage. We ended up losing about 5% of the crop, which is a lot better than what I've heard through neighbors and discussions, you know, up and down the valley. I'm just curious, pre-watering, just because if a heat event happens, if you haven't got ahead of it, you can't respond fast enough to actually minimize the impact. So how far in advance is this technology allowing you to get ahead of it I'm so glad you asked that question. So a lot of people talk about data and, you know, again, a lot of this was burned into me in tech. If you don't have real-time data, you can't make decisions based off old data. So the great thing about FiTech is that it's literally real-time. I literally am looking at the temperatures in 30 different points across four blocks. So a lot of high-res data at three foot under the soil, one foot under the soil at canopy level. And I'm seeing temperature, moisture, and soil temperature. And then basically you can apply irrigation to say, what was the change and be able to manage this. This is a technology that's very powerful. We're going to extend it to misters this year. So I'm super excited to be able to do some experiments around misting at different canopy levels in a way to, again, control the temperature, but also hydrate the vines and not overhydrate. What we found by having the dashboards and reports that we were able to reduce our watering by 25% and still get a great crop. I think most vineyards, again, don't quote me on this, are overwatered because it's always easier to kind of just be sure and be safe. I think measuring it allows you to kind of back it off because you're seeing what the probe is detecting and being able to kind of be more exact around it. And going back, in terms of seeing those heat spikes, those three heat spikes over the year, you were able to water in advance by a couple of days because of that indication? No, no, no. I did it that morning. So first of all, this is the level of precision that I love. 
those heat events were three hours, like literally three hours where the temperature went above 110 into 117 or 19. So a lot of the weather stations just give you the high of that day. Once you double click down to the data and you look at the hourly between the diurnal shift, at least at our location. And by the way, our blocks have completely different readings. So there's at least three degrees difference between the front blocks and the back blocks, even though we're talking about a very small area. So being able to have that data at that level of granularity and having it in real time literally allows you to decide, do I leave it on for another half an hour, 20 minutes, or am I good? And so what we were going for is before the heat spike happened in the afternoon, how do we get enough water in to the plants so that it basically has enough to sweat? Plants don't sweat. This is kind of one of the ways to get enough water in so you can get it out. And unfortunately, some of our plants that were younger that didn't have canopy coverage, the berries were raising. Obviously, the irrigation didn't help. But for the majority of the vineyard, it helped a lot. If you recall, immediately after that, we had a rainfall. So we went from pre-watering to cutting off all water and waiting for Mother Nature. So being able to, again, see how much rainfall there was also helps. So again, this is the whole thing around being able to have a 360 view of irrigation so that you can make decisions, not just based on how much you watered, but how much water is in the soil already in the air with ET or coming naturally through rainfalls. So that's another pillar. I look at each of these as a different pillar. Wine view was one pillar that gives you bigger Irrigation is another pillar that gives you data around how to irrigate. The third one, which we need to kind of talk about, which I'll talk a little bit about the low-tech way that we started with, and then I ended up having to build a custom solution for because I didn't find anything on the market, was around crop evaluations and being able to kind of quantify health of the vineyard at a vine-by-vine level. So we have been managing our vineyard at an individual vine level for the last four years, which means that we have a map of every vine. We grade every vine throughout the growing season. Some of that is manual. I started with a viticulturist and we'd walk literally every vine and give it a score of zero to six. Zero is it's a blank hole and nothing's in there. One is there's a rootstock. Two means it's a dead vine. And then three, you start getting into weak, strong, you know, all the way up to fives and sixes, which is what we want. And this was very effective for us in our replant strategy because we could look at vines that were questionable and have a postmortem plan post harvest. So the most critical evaluation was done a week before harvest, where you can see the fruit. But during Verizon, we could look at the same grading. So it's basically, we take the seven stages of growing and apply a scoring mechanism. And then that scoring mechanism helps you decide who are the candidates for either being replanted or what's the health regimen for those vines that need that. And this has allowed us over the last four years to improve the health of the vineyard year over year. And so it's the health of the vine, the yield crop, but also the quality of the fruit. Is it simply based on looks or are you actually doing some aspect of taste component to it as well? No, we're taking grape samples and looking at it with ETS numbers as well for phenolics in particular at different stages. So we have some control vines 
that are controls for number five and six healthy fruit. And then basically throughout the season, particularly post-raison, closer to harvest, we have the phenolic data too. So it kind of came out of this obsession to say, hey, can we kind of put a heat map on where our best vines are. Again, I'm a purist. I like heterogeneity. I don't like homogeneity. I don't want all the vines to be exactly the same. But quite frankly, if you have vines that aren't producing, they're occupying a space that you need to deal with. And that's unfortunately part of the business of the wine too. For us, replanting a block is a catastrophic event. We want to have vines that will live for many years. And so it kind of challenges the whole theory of how do you get, I want to be open with this, we're not replanting every year, we replant every three years. So basically we have generational vines, the first generation, second generation, third generation that are a few years apart, but they're identified through data so that the data actually tells you what are the vines that are candidates for replanting versus vines that are doing healthy and we need to kind of keep them going. You mentioned FindView and FiTech, and you helped build out a crop evaluation thing. Are these out-of-the-box solutions sufficient for what you need, or did you have to do any customization or add-ons to them? I would say most work as advertised for the existing simple basic use case. What I ended up doing with all of them was export the data into an analytics platform which is kind of what I have, and to do custom reporting or do correlation. I think there's a lot of that. It reminds me a lot of kind of the tech industry where we started out with features that were advertised as products. Then you go from features to products to platforms. That's kind of the transition in tech, that you're a point feature until you're a product and then you're a platform, which has many, many products in it. I haven't found a platform yet for farming. (laughs) That is for modern precision farming. I found a lot of features and I found a few products. So I look at WineView and FiTech as products. They're definitely not features. I look at tools like Thule as almost a feature. It's a great product, you know, for measuring ET, but it does one thing really well. And then like we've seen in tech, you need a lot of glue code and a lot of analytics and big data software that puts all this stuff together. And I'm hoping our industry can be an ecosystem of standards and products that interoperate. Right now, you can't even find a standard on how do you name a vine. I had to come up with our own because something as basic as how do I tell the viticulturist to sample vine five on row X and block Y. Uh, Every vineyard is different. Every block is different. The nomenclature is not standard. So there's no such a thing as IP address today. I think in five years, 10 years with precision agriculture, robots, et cetera, that we're talking about, all of that needs to, you know, that foundation will be put in place and hopefully these systems start communicating with each other. Right now, Excel is the integration group. Right. All of these (laughs) products have an export to Excel or Google Sheets. And that's how I did it. Yeah, that's how it starts. How you can figure out what you need to do. That's not a bad thing to start with. But all this technology costs money, I presume. How has that impacted the cost of farming? Is it a lot more expensive? So I try to, again, be pragmatic. I don't want for us or for other people. Look, our tech investment is higher than most farms. I'm a technologist. If I'm obsessed with data, I have to pay for it, right? ETS lab tests aren't cheap. Neither is the software. But 
as a pragmatist, I apply a rule of thumb that says when you make an investment, you have to kind of look at the net present value in a three-year kind of horizon. And in three years, you have to look at every investment and say, does it lower my cost of farming? So in the case of Monarch, we bought the Monarch. It's a great economic model, 25K, I think, with all the rebates. And what that did was it saves my transport cost of renting basically a tractor with all the hours of transporting in and out. It also takes away one more barrier. If we want to clean our weeds every two weeks, right now that's part of the cost. So it allows me to do things more frequently that I wouldn't normally be able to do. But if it's just tech for the sake of tech, then it becomes kind of not something that I can justify, cost justify. And a lot of these companies go out of business because quite frankly, they're not solving problems that move the needle. We need a lot of innovation that's targeted at cost cutting or improving the quality enough that it becomes a revenue generator. That's something, again, the tech industries, at least on the enterprise side, had figured out, which is you need to have a business value at the heart of the technology as opposed to tech for tech. But with the state of the technology right now, did your cost of farming on a dollar per acre basis go up as you deployed new technologies or did it actually go down? I think it actually went slightly up, but what it helped was in the following year, again, the three-year window. So WineView, when we brought it in, obviously we had to pay more to get data, even old data, but the reports, every one of them literally kind of changed hours and hours of crop evaluation by foot to try to figure out what's going on. So WineView was a no-brainer. Fitech was also a no-brainer, particularly in the drought years. Now, this year, I'm looking forward to Fitech to really kind of help me because you have to kind of really hold back on water this year with all the natural water we have in the soil. So the soil probes are going to pay for themselves. You know, Otherwise, we'd be sitting here guessing, is there water, is there not water across all the different blocks? So I'm sorry if you can't kind of blanket make that statement across all technology investments. The ones that, to me, are more mature tend to have a better ROI discussion as opposed to kind of nice to have or vanity type projects. How much more opportunity is there to change how we farm with technology? And I'm assuming at some point there's a diminishing return, but how much more do you think we have to go? We're just in the first inning of this, especially when I look at labor rates. Labor rates have gone up by one count 38% in the last two years in terms of farming. It's not across the board, but both supply is down in terms of labor supply, qualified labor supply. A lot of people left uh, the industry and it's harder to kind of recruit new people in. I do think technology is the answer to that. I actually had this discussion the other day that driving a Monarch is like basically recruiting for the Air Force now. Air Force had a hard time convincing moms to let go of their sons to go fly a mission overseas. And with the advent of drones and being able to kind of apply that digital technology, you can recruit in different set of the next generation, quite frankly. Kids are much more data-driven than we are because they're used to looking at statistics. Every sport that you look at has numbers in it. And so to me, part of this is looking at the long game and saying, what is the future? And then how do we get to that future? I don't think the future is going to be 100% autonomous robots farming for us. That's far-fetched and certainly not in mind. But it also can't be 100% manual because we just won't have enough people that want to do all the work. So this is where pragmatism comes in. I think there's going to be a set of activities that are highly repetitive and undesirable, like weed whacking under the vines. 
that's not a career. Nobody likes that job. Yeah, it does pay, but who wants to do that? Those are ripe for automation. Another example is when I put in the irrigation monitoring automation, I realized that a lot of the vineyard management companies or estate farmers would literally have somebody get into a car or a truck, drive to a farm, press a button to turn on water, wait for it for whenever it's completed and turn it off and come back. Again, that's not the type of work that builds a career or enhances us. That needs to be automated. So there's plenty of low-hanging fruit around automation without talking about chat GPT and all the evils of getting rid of a quarter of the workforce. And then computer vision has massive opportunities in this field. I know we talk about optical sorters, but we're looking at several technologies that are using computer vision for crop evaluation so that they can do that scoring in an automated way very fast. I think that's, again, part of the secret to getting more real-time data so that you can act on it during the growing season to change the game, to have a better crop, a better quality crop, less waste, less perhaps fruit that could be good, that's dropped. So a lot of opportunities. Yeah, obviously, when we think about technology, you mentioned the monarch and things like that. But a lot of people, when you mention that, something that jumps to their mind is mechanical harvesting. And I've talked to plenty of people in Chablis specifically that have used mechanical harvesting to quickly get the fruit in before frost. And obviously now Napa having fires, I'm curious on what are your thoughts on mechanical harvesting? Is that something, given the quality of wine and the price point of wine, that you think you would look at exploring? Because that technology has come a long way in the last decade or so. Yeah, I think it's come a long way. I just wouldn't prioritize it right now on our list or kind of the area that I'm looking at. First of all, the question is the damage that it causes to the vines themselves. And again, I do believe that unless you're farming, so you can do vertical farming. At some point, you can say, I'm going to change everything around the vineyard to make it easier for harvesting. Or you can say, the vineyard is the vineyard. And we have to kind of respect its contours. We have to respect its soil. We have to respect what's the best training method to grow those grapes. And I think a lot of the mechanical harvesters work really well if you have homogeneity. I mean, they've gotten much better to be able to deal with that. But I doubt that you'll be seeing them in some of the terraces and some of the areas that are literally unsafe for those type of I mean, at some point, gravity kind of kicks in. I mean, the same problem that Monarch has. It's not an answer for every train that's available. I think there's areas that are very interesting when it comes to quality, like mildew. And there are technologies that are emerging, UV technologies, et cetera, that, again, are going to go at the heart of disease protection and kind of giving us better quality that perhaps don't take jobs away they actually create new capabilities that we never had. And to me, that's really interesting. Around How do I bring new capabilities that I never had before? Crop evaluation, we talk about it. Unless you're crazy like me and you like to walk your vineyard and your vineyard is small enough that you could do that in two days, three days. Most people cannot walk every vine on a regular schedule and understand what it needs. With computer vision, you can do that, whether it's drone-based or we've now seen attachments that self-contain components that can attach to an ATV or a robot even. That's, again, new capabilities that I didn't have. R2-D2 was a farmer. People forget that. Luke and R2 were farming <laughs> in Star Wars. That's some of the capabilities that make it interesting because, again, it becomes man and technology working together as opposed to this kind of obsession around automation means we're removing jobs or we're getting rid of entire people. 
I'll take computer vision in the vineyards over giving me parking tickets in San Francisco. Well, I'll just tell you one funny story, if I may. I remember, and I shall not mention the company because they were a former multi-billion dollar company that bought one of my companies. So I was an employee at this company, not at the time, but I remember them at a tech conference talking about the data center of the future would be managed by a man and a dog. And this was their big grand keynote speech to a group of people who manage data centers, which is kind of very apropos. And they said the man's job is to feed the dog and the dog's job is to make sure that the man doesn't touch the keyboard. And it was the worst. I mean, first of all, it's it, ha ha. It might be a funny joke, but the vineyard of the future will be managed by very smart data-driven farmers who have figured out how to use technology to its utmost capability. But it's an artisan. I believe farming is an art just like winemaking is an art. When you see master pruners go through and look at a vine by vine view and decide where to make their cuts, computers can assist that, but they can't perfect it. Keeping at that lens and backing out, what do you think are the key elements that will allow innovation to spread across the wine sector at large? So I think number one is entrepreneurship and that entrepreneurial culture. Silicon Valley has it. We don't. We want to create it. That's one of the things that I'm a big champion of startups. I want more people to go out and, you know, live their dreams and do a startup. I'm working with UC Davis and other schools to see what's their pipeline of startups coming out. I think all of us need 50, 100 more startups that are attacking each of these areas. Second challenge is funding, quite frankly, getting money behind those startups and getting a coalition of investors who believe in our industry and don't look at it as being very short term. And the third one is kind of openness. Technology has changed our world every day. The fact that we're having this podcast was not possible without technology that was invented in the last decade. So we have to be optimists around the fact that once you get entrepreneurs and capital around any problem, you're going to have magic happen and our lives will become much better. So beyond the vineyard, Neotempo is also doing some innovative things with packaging, or so I hear. What are those things? Without kind of boasting kind of our own thing, it came out of necessity. We surveyed as a new brand, one of the things we tried to do was just basically have a smallest carbon footprint we can as a brand new brand with no customers. Like I figured if I can't get to net zero faster than some of these billion dollar companies, we really have a systemic problem. So I started talking to all the glass companies to look at the weight of their bottles. And because we have a luxury product, I was looking for something that was luxurious, but lightweight. I started talking to packaging companies around how I would take the set lightweight glass and package it. And what I found is these companies don't talk to each other and certainly there's no architecture around it. So what we've done at Neotempo is created a architecture for taking a 750 milliliter wine bottle and make it as sustainable as possible using current technology. In other words, I designed a new bottle that still fits all the sellers and it looks luxurious. It has some design elements that allow it to pack very densely so that it reduces the weight of the bottle by about 40%. So it's a 550 gram glass bottle, 100% made from recycled glass. Again, that's an invention that has happened in Spain. Couldn't find a local producer to do that while glass had a style that is 100% recycled glass. 
We are working with a number of providers to provide a temperature-controlled styrofoam alternative made out of corn, and then no plastic anywhere in our packaging, including tape. So the idea is to basically do the soup to nuts around every component of it has to be recyclable or compostable, and ideally, all the components also come from recycled components before, so that from a small circle, you can basically take reuse. Reuse is much harder. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to touch reuse yet. This is around recycling and recyclability as V1 on our packaging. So why do you think no one has done this yet? And how do you think wine buyers and consumers will react to it? I can't tell you why people have not done that. Maybe they're not as crazy as I am. I mean, it's not easy. I'll tell you that. It took 12 months and several trips internationally to kind of find the components. So unless you've built hardware before and you're used to kind of working with semiconductors and chip designers and, you know, component manufacturers and then assembling something, which I honestly had never done. I'm a software guy, but I at least understand the concept of having your architecture and having components that comprise it and the interplay between the different components and engineering that. I think the industries that support the wine industry around packaging, quite frankly, are not innovating fast enough. Other industries have. So I talked to some of my friends in the consumer electronics industry around technology that, for example, Apple has now to replace the plastic trays for your iPhone and iPad. They're now paper trays, and it's a wet set technology that takes paper pulp and designs beautiful, not the pulp that we get, beautiful leather-like end products out of recycled paper. I can't tell you. I think it's a huge opportunity, quite frankly, because... For us as a brand, this will save us a ton of money in shipping freight to the end customer. They don't have to pay for a lot of glass that they just throw away. And for the environment, this dramatically reduces the footprint across the board. It's the number one contributor to footprint, as you know, is the glass over 30% in, in multiple researches, both internationally and such. So we'll be bringing this in. We'll also, I kind of had this mantra that says, I'm going to test it on myself. If it works, then I'll share it with others. So part of Neotempo will be to kind of share how we did it. And uh, we have created some internal IP. Partly the idea there is to just be able to kind of protect it against knockoffs so that we don't have people kind of knocking off something that is supposed to be green. Between the greenwashing and some of the things that we're seeing out in the market where they've literally taken styrofoam and put it in a box that's recycled and they falsify it as recyclable, there's a lot of bad things that are happening in this industry as well around it. As we wrap up the episode, we want to know what has been the most memorable wine you've drank in the last year and who did you drink it with? I have to say this is a very special thing that happened to us two weeks ago. So we were in New York for a fantastic wine event, Napa in New York, hosted by Antonio Galoni. We were just guests. It was a wonderful tribute, I think, to Napa. For that event, I took a bottle of a 1979 Mondavi Reserve that was gifted to me and it had never left Napa. When we moved into Napa, a dear friend, local friend who's been here for a long time, gave that as a gift to us. 
And I had the pleasure of opening it and it was incredible. Then I had a chance to meet with Tim Mandavi, who was at the same event and have him taste it. And this is what made it even more remarkable. He mentioned that that wine was the first vintage when Opus One had already kind of started. So Tim, to some degree, was always afraid that, you know, if Opus takes some of the best grapes, what would happen to Mandavi Reserve? And I have to say, it drank beautifully. Absolutely beautifully, so full of character. Love that kind of toca loan in its heydays again. I love drinking some of the 70s wines because that's when Napa was still under, kind of was indie, uh, if you will. It was still indie wines. So there's a lot of things in Neo Tempo that we love that is modern and new and tech, but we also love tradition and we're anchored in kind of honoring the people that came kind of before that built this valley and can't think of a better wine than that one. Yeah, those are great wines. The reserve and the non-reserve bottlings still hold up really well. And those 12.5% alcohols are doing amazing. I'll tell you what's also interesting. For my bottle research, I ended up basically going through about 200 bottles of all Napa and and international wines. Most of these were already drunk. I have to admit, gave me a good excuse to also do research on some of the older ones. And our research, uh, research <laughs> and <laughs> our <laughs> benchmark, and I'm very proud to say this because I had a pleasure of kind of meeting them with the Dick Grace and his wife, but it was a Grace family in 1987 that uh, weighed in at a hefty 570 grams. And I love that. And we were able to beat that in our design with a 550 gram. Obviously, the 570 was not designed for DTC. So probably may not make it in transport with FedEx and UPS. But we wanted to kind of go back to the olden days of Napa that we were making phenomenal wines that aged beautifully without the heavy glass. And that was kind of, again, another way of paying tribute, paying homage to what really built this value in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah, I mean, it's also just good business. Kia, thank you so much. We appreciate all the insight and great examples of what you're doing in the vineyard and how you're integrating technology in the process. Uh, it was really enlightening. Thank you so much. It's great fun to be with you guys. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.